There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Jim here from Team Wonky. Our usual podcast is on its Easter break this week. So instead, we've got a special episode featuring highlights from our event this week where we launched a new book on the social purpose of higher education in the 21st century. In the new power university, King's College London's Jonathan Grant argues that to remake the social contract between universities and the public, universities must embrace new power values that focus on participation, networks governance and radical transparency. Let's dive straight in. Um, what I thought I would do is sort of um, try to sort of frame the book as much as anything. Um, and the book is sort of comes from sort of three ideas. And um, those three ideas are not my ideas. I, I'm a bit of a magpie. I like going around sort of um, picking off other people's ideas and then um, trying to shape them a bit. Um, and the first big idea comes from a book by a guy called John Wilson Saul who's a um, novelist and a um, philosopher, um, Canadian, um, by background, has got a, a, a great backlog of books. Um, but he wrote this book, The Collapse of Globalism, in um, 2005. Um, and I, I mentioned the date because in that book, he effectively um, anticipates the global financial crash that um, occurred a number of years um, later. Um, but the, the, the sort of the idea that I take from um, John's book is this idea that we're living in an in-between time in his language. Um, and he describes this as a vacuum, an interregnum between two unreasonable certainties. Um, and he argues that we have this short positive moment of uncertainty where choice is privileged. Um, and it seems to me for various reasons, which I'll come back to, that we are living in one of these in-between times. And as universities as institutions, as individuals, and as a sector, we do have choices we can make. Um, and if we make the right choices, we can make this moment of uncertainty a positive moment. Um, the second book um, is this book by Amy Buller, um, Darkness Over Germany. It was originally published in 1943, um, but was again republished last year um, with a subtitle, A Warning from History. Um, in researching the book, I, I just found um, Amy Buller's um, life just um, extraordinary. She achieved so much um, in, in, in her life. Um, but what Darkness Over Germany does is effectively an account, a series of all histories um, stemmed from her time when she used to travel around Germany, um, participating around tables in conferences and engaging, if you like, with the middle classes in Germany. And her big question, which she um, pulls out in this book, is how in the 1930s and the 1940s did a country as great of Germany get enveloped in this darkness of Nazism? Um, and that's what she is trying to address. And in the preface of this book, um, she talks about when she was um, warden of University Hall at the University of Liverpool, um, she would recount tales um, of her encounters with um, Germans to the students in, in air raid moments and when they were on firefighting duty. And the book came out of that. 
Um, and you know, the book has many, many tales, but the, the idea I wanted to pull out of here is this idea that um, at that time, um, teachers in universities had become purely academic and remote from life. So as we live in this moment, this privileged moment of choice, it's really important that we don't become remote from life as a sector. And I, I worry that we're, we're, we're doing that. Now, that may be a bit um, pessimistic. So the, the optimism I, I just want to bring to the table um, is the third book by um, and Henry Timms and Jeremy Hymans. I'm absolutely delighted that Henry's um, joined us um, this afternoon. Um, and this was published in um, 2018. It's a best-selling book. Um, and it's all about new power. Um, and my interpretation of new power, and Henry may um, want to critique this, is it's, it's sort of bringing together two sort of fundamental concepts. It's bringing together the idea of social movements, the ideas of community organizing, the ideas of citizen um, participation, um, and examining that through, if you like, the new network technologies of social media, of the internet, uh, and such like. And they point out very articulately in the book that that has made a number of disruptions to different sectors. So you can think of um, campaigning, um, Black Lives Matters, Extinction Rebellion um, have managed to channel this new power. Um, but so have companies, Airbnb, Nubo is another example. And even in the UK, some of you may recall when The Guardian crowdsourced um, looking at MPs' expenses, um, a very good example of new power. And the idea of new power is that it, it fundamentally operates differently. It is in, in, in their language like a current, it is made by many, it is open, it's participatory, and it's peer-driven. Um, so what I'm trying to do in the book is to sort of take these three ideas and think through what a, a university would look like in the 21st century. Now, let me just um, pick up a couple of those themes. There may be some of you who may challenge the idea that we're living in an in-between time. Um, but for those of you who do, I would just ask you to do a quick survey of newspaper headlines. I mean, first of all, it is extraordinary that universities are on the front page of these newspapers. Um, and secondly, the breadth of issues that we're picking up here, um, and this is all from the last five years around mental health, around fees, around fat cat salaries, around free speech, around um, positions around Brexit, around racism, around China and such like. It's not only the fact that we're, we're managing to land onto the front pages as a sector, but is the breadth of those issues, which I think is really interesting. And, and, and that that is disruptive um, for a sector that, you know, probably for the last 50 years has led a relatively um, cosy life vis-a-vis -vis other areas in, in, in the um, public realm. But if you also um, do another scan, and actually if you go onto Wonky and you look at the blogs that have um, been written by um, the community of um, um, people who contribute to Wonky over the last um, five years, again, the intray for the sector, for leaders in universities, for leaders in student unions, for everybody um, involved in the sector is, is massive. And it's not just the sort of, again, the list um, of issues, but it's also the sort of disruptive nature of those issues. Um, so, you know, we have an incoming um, cohort of students who are very much defined by these Gen Z values, who are digital natives, and they have different expectations. And, 
and, and the book goes into this in some depth. Um, when you look at their values, when you look at the survey data, they are clearly very different um, than the millennials and um, people um, before them. We've got these big existential crises around climate and how does that relate to academic travel? Um, you know, the traditional route to academic success and promotion was jumping on a plane and going halfway around the world to give a keynote speech. Is that acceptable? Now, clearly, um, we've demonstrated through the pandemic that we can do things in different ways, um, but we need to think about that sort of stuff. We have the, the politics of populism and the um, nature of knowledge and the shape of knowledge and the so-called agenda around decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and recently, we've seen the emergence of um, place-based um, politics, especially in the UK, and these concepts of placemaking and leveling up all of which are substantive issues in their own right, and all of which are hitting the intrays um, of universities at the same time. And then to really sort of amplify the, the challenges, um, we had the small matter of a COVID pandemic um, pop up and um, really challenge both the, sort of the business model of the universities, but also, um, if you like, the social purpose of the universities. Um, and as Debbie mentioned in the introduction, I, I started writing this book um, in the summer of um, 2019, um, but I did spend um, a period of time writing it through the COVID pandemic. And I, I, I like to argue that um, the ideas I'm putting forward here, in one sense, I think have been um, accelerated and amplified by the pandemic. I don't think they've changed. I did reflect whether I needed to do a rewrite um, and ended up thinking that no, um, that, that that should be fine. So, you know, there we are. We're living in this in-between time. We've got this um, sort of social contract that has been eroded by this, these external headlines. And we've got an in-tray, which is um, both big and complex um, to deal with. So how do we navigate ourselves out of this? And this is where the, the concept of new power comes into play. And, th and this is a figure taken from Henry and Jeremy's book. Um, and on the left-hand side, we have um, what they call the old power values of um, managerialism, of exclusivity, of confidentiality, of professionalism, of specialization, of long-term affiliation and loyalty. Um, I, I, my view is, you know, those sets of words describe universities perfectly. Um, we are old power institutions. Um, so sort of the intellectual um, game I play in the book is actually start to challenge that and think through what would happen to the university if we um, adopted these informal opt-in decision-making mechanisms, if we relied on network governance, we bought an open source collaboration, um, applied radical transparency, a do-it-yourself maker culture, and acknowledged short-term conditional affiliations. And if you like, that's the intellectual journey um, that I try to follow. In terms of structure, um, the book is split into four um, parts. Um, the first part is very much the framing section, which I, I've just given you a very helicopter view of. Um, and then I have a chapter two, which um, is more of a history um, of the evolving social purpose of universities um, going over um, a thousand years. And, and there I argue that universities have evolved their social purpose, and therefore it is definitely possible for us to do that again. Um, and then the meat of the book is in part two and part three. Um, and part two looks at this idea of new power through the three missions of the university as I talk about them. Um, that's through um, new power learning, new power research, and social responsibility. And I, I passionately argue that you have to put social responsibility at the core of the new power university um, to deliver on those values. And then part three um, takes those missions and looks at it through people um, and power and to a degree voice.
And that's where I get into the, the debate around Gen Z students. Um, and that gets into issues around mental health and freedom of speech and, and such like. Um, I think the most controversial chapter is probably around staffing um, because I end up um, in a place I did not anticipate I would end up, I should stress. Um, but I end up um, um, embracing the gig academic rather than trying to um, push it away. Um, and then the final section is very much around communities and um, how the university is both integrated in and serves the communities within which it resides. And I, I'm very careful in stressing when I use that language, it's not necessarily geographical place. We, we operate in virtual communities and we need to understand that. And then I tried to bring it all together in, in the final section around the conduct of the new power university. I have a chapter around structure and governance. And then the final chapter um, really takes on this concept of social purpose and concludes that universities need to move into a space where they actually become advocates for social change um, and they champion in that. And, and that, that's quite a um, radical proposition, I think, for some. Um, as I um, went through the book, um, you know, the number of ideas stuck in my head. And I, I like to think that um, when you have the opportunity of looking at it, you will um, sort of focus on different elements of, of the book. There, there's quite a lot of um, um, ideas in there, at least that's what I like to think. But I guess the four which um, sort of um, came out to me, and I put these up as it gives us some structure around conversation as much as anything, Debbie, is this historical failure of universities to be socially responsible. Um, and, uh, you know, you've heard me say this before, but I'll continue to say it until it changes. Um, I think it's shameful and scandalous that only 38 universities out of approximately 130 in this country accredit themselves for paying the living wage. I do not fundamentally see how you can call yourself a university if you are not paying a living wage to your lowest paid um, workers. Um, but there are other, lots of other articulations around social responsibility. Um, the second area is around this gender student space. Um, some really interesting concepts around so-called delayed um, adulthood. Um, young people today are um, taking longer, if you like, or their child is, is longer, and that transition to adulthood is taking longer, and that has implications for student mental health, and it has implications of how universities react to that. Um, as I've already prefaced, um, I think we are going to see a rise of the gig academic and the so-called third-way professional, and as a consequence of that, we will see the inevitable erosion, the classic, whatever that is, academic contract. Um, and then finally is this um, inconsistent role that universities play as advocates for change. We are very comfortable um, in complaining um, when it's in our self-interest to complain. When research budgets are just about to be cut, um, we are writing op-eds in major newspapers. Um, but when it comes to other issues that may be of more interest um, to the societies we serve, we, we um, are somewhat mute on those points. Um, so just four ideas we can explore in, in conversation. Let me just wrap up um, with um, another set of quotes. One of the um, pleasures, I think, or privileges of um, having the opportunity to write a book like this is you do a lot of reading. Um, and these are um, a series of quotes which I, I guess made me fall off my chair when I read them. Um, the first one again comes from Amy Buller. Um, and, you know, she talks about it, um, you'll find it is not essential to them, um, talking about um, the Nazi regime, to know what is the scientific explanation. What is essential is that our experience is the basic experience of historical reality. 
written in 1943, seems to me that's a very apt definition of um, alternative facts and post-truth that we're, we're experiencing at the moment. Um, the second quote I, I came across was by the Spanish philosopher um, Ortega y Gasset, um, and he wrote a series of um, lectures around university reform and published them in a pamphlet in, in the 1940s, although the lectures were occurring um, up to 15 years before then. And he talks about um, university reform is about the complete formulation of its purpose. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do um, through this book is really think through a complete reformulation of purpose. Um, and then Amy Gutman, who's the president of University of Pennsylvania, um, in my mind, um, summed up the whole book in this beautiful quote, a university is first and foremost a social undertaking to create social good. Um, there are lots of definitions out there about what universities are. I think that is the single best definition I've ever come across. Um, so on that note, Debbie, let me wrap up and I'll stop sharing. I'm very happy to explore some of those themes. Thanks, Jonathan. We, we promised crunchy conversations and uh, you've definitely give us, given us plenty to get our teeth into there. Um, I mean, let's let's start with this, um, your sort of contention of the historic failure of, of universities to be socially responsible. And I, you know, and I completely take your point about, it, you know, things like things like living wage, which I guess has sort of become a... Um, a sort, of, a sort of a baseline level of kind of cred credible, you know, yep. good behaviour in society. But I mean, you know, coming from a perspective, you know, so, so many voices in the sector, their position is, you know, through the research that we do, through the education that we provide, through the students that we provide opportunities to, you know, so much good is done through those missions. Um, you know, it is on that basis that we are allowed to call ourselves charities. It is on, you know, and, and, and we have all this evidence to show, of, you know, the, the economic impact and, 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 you know, educational value that we provide, the extension of knowledge, all the rest of it. Why is that not enough? Well, for two reasons. One is um, you could be wittingly or unwittingly doing harm in the way that you manage your operations. Um, and yeah, that harm could be by not um, paying a living wage, but it, it could also be by investing in fossil fuels. It could also be by supporting academic travel and, and having um, incentives in your promotion criteria, for example, that rely on um, international and intercontinental um, travel. Um, so I think there's a bunch of stuff where you um, need to think about your operation um, and reassure yourself that you're not doing harm. Um, and that's not a criticism. I think lots of corporations, universities and other um, non-universities institutions will be doing that. But as um, civic institutions, I think we have a responsibility um, to say we're not doing harm. Um, and then I think you can actually um, swivel and start thinking about how you institutionally do good. Now, clearly, you do do good through research and you do do good through education. And I explore that a lot um, in the book, as you know, um, elements of um, research may not be doing good and elements of education may not be doing good. So thinking about how you maximize that good through those two channels, I think is absolutely critical. Um, but again, then you can use your assets, your intellectual assets, but also your physical and financial assets to do good. Um, two examples of that. Um, at Trinity College um, in Cambridge, I came across an example recently where the Student Society has started working um, with the college to look at its endowment and to start to um, put together student activism around antimicrobial resistance. Um, Sally Davis, named Sally Davis, former chief medical officer, is now master um, at Trinity and has obviously had a long interest in, in that topic. Um, but that student society successfully brought a resolution at the McDonald's annual general meeting saying that the meat use in Big Macs should not be based on um, the inappropriate use of antimicrobial um, drugs. 
Um, so they're, 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 you know, the students and the financial wealth of Trinity has come together um, to do some good. And, you know, and that's the sort of creative thinking where I think we should be going. In your, in your second chapter, you, you know, you talk about this idea that universities were often founded with this, this uh, sort of a mission to be socially responsible and to kind of do good in their communities. Um, and, you know, in part by carrying out their missions, but also kind of as, a, you know, as a sort of institutional wider, wider kind of mission of service. Um, but that, you know, that, that historically they've not always been brilliant at carrying that out. And, you know, why do you think that is? I, I think that's um, uh, uh, sort of, well, inevitably it's a mix of um, reasons and, and it's easy to oversimplify. But, but I do think over the last um, sort of 30 years or so, we have seen a move to you know, what people like to call managerialism, um, new public management, whatever language we want to use, um, apply to universities. Now, I, I don't reject that wholeheartedly, let me stress. I think it is entirely appropriate that we um, manage ourselves as, as professional um, institutions and organisations. Um, but I think at times that has gone too far um, and we've lost sight of purpose. Um, and that agenda, I don't think it is solely for universities and that there's a big agenda in the private sector um, looking about the issue of purpose and um, issues of social value, which I um, bring back in. Um, but as again, you know, as sort of the intellectual leaders in society, as civic institutions, we should surely be setting the example. Um, and that's kind of what I'm what I would like us to do through, through the new power university. I mean, this is, this is interesting, actually, looking at the chat box, we're, we're sort of straight into culture wars territory. And I think this kind of speaks to some of the challenges here. Um, to what, you know, to what extent is the new power values? It's, it, is, is it all a bit woke? And is that a bit difficult for universities? <laughs> I, no, I know. I, I, to, to the contrary, I think, um, and Henry may well want to um, pick up on this in, in, in when we get to the discussion. But, um, you know, Donald Trump is a very clever um, user of a lot of the new power values. He, he then, uh, you know, um, Henry and Jeremy talk about this in the new power. He then uses that new power in ways which we might find difficult and would describe as old power. Um, but his use of Twitter, his use of energizing movements um, are, 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 were, were and are very powerful. So I don't think this is um, this need not be a political issue and it need not be a cultural war issue. Um, it could easily be characterized that way. But in one sense, I think we have a responsibility not to think of it like that, um, but to think of it um, as a new way of doing things. You wouldn't say, for example, that um, Airbnb sits on either side of a cultural war, um, but they've adopted a set of new power values to create a new enterprise. Yes, I think yeah, there's, there's sort of nothing innately. It's, it, new power is neither benign nor innately harmful. It's yeah, it just it just sort it just sort of is, and yep. uh, and it's the question of kind of what you, what what you can do with it and how you can kind of adapt yourself to it. Um, we're, we're getting quite a lot of questions coming in about leadership, and I want to pick that up, pick that up in a wee minute to sort of reassure people yep. that we're, we're absolutely going to pick that up, um, and particularly kind of drivers for change. But um, I also just wanted to pick up a, a question from John Goddard, who said, "Is this only an agenda for elite universities?" Which I suspect is a uh, something you'll want to put to bed from the outset. Uh, absolutely, and, and I, you know, again in the book, I I, I, I quite consciously try to sort of bring examples from a range of universities, including elite universities, but not excluding them. Um, one of the most formative um, visits I think I've had to a university is a university called Widener University um, in the US, um, located in a place called Chester, um, which claimed to fame was that it was the murder capital of the world for a long period of time. Um, well, the world, murder capital of the US, I think it is not the world. Um, and the leadership there about 15 years ago now, um, they had a number of murders on, on the campus. Um, they had a budget for building a wall around the campus. Um, an incoming president said, um, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to use that budget for um, community engagement. Um, didn't build a wall. 
built a new school, built a physiotherapy clinic, um, built a, um, a, a dental um, clinic. And, you know, I can remember quite um, sort of a, quite a profound moment for me being taken on a tour around those clinics in, you know, probably some of the most impoverished communities I've ever been in, if I'm, if I'm honest about it, um, and seeing the impact a university can have in those communities. Um, and actually, I think that, that, that model that Widener articulated there um, is a model that sort of is stuck in the back of my brain as I take this. And I don't think you would call Widener uh, an elite university in any sense of the word. Uh, I'm, I'm really mindful. I really want, to, well, really, really want to bring our panel in, but I do have one kind of fun, really burning question, which I don't think we're going to answer right away. Maybe we'll return to it at the end, but it is about leadership um, in, of the New Park University. And, and uh, I mean, if, if anyone's read my review of uh, the New Park University on, on Monkey this morning, it's one of the things I pick up uh, as being actually, because New, New Park often doesn't really have leaders. Um, you know, because because it you know because because networks are dispersed because social movements are you know different people may kind of seek to corral new power to their ends as as both you know as both Presidents Obama and Trump have done, um, but it is hard to uh, hold anyone accountable really in the way and sometimes for, for how new power works. So where does the change come from? Well, so I think so. Um, I, it, it comes from everybody, yeah. Um, so again, I talk about this. I talk about leadership, but I also talk about followership. Um, and as followers, we are as um, sort of accountable for delivering this change um, as our leaders. Um, and if we don't respect that, um, that, then you know it's not going to happen, um, frankly. But the the sort of um, if you like the classic um, leadership skills, and a bit classic because I because I'm, I'm not sure um, they actually exist. Um, do need to be sort of pushed back and a new set of um, new power skills and leadership skills brought to the front. And I think, again, there's a lot in the literature um, around um, such skills. And, and there's a guy called Marshall Gantz, um, who I'm a great fan of, and he's a Harvard academic who has looked at leadership as social movements. Um, and there's a lot in his writings, which I think are highly applicable to leadership in universities. Um, and and it and it is um, as you say, it's about giving up power. It's about empathy. Um, it's about um, listening um, and you know really listening, not just listening, really listening, enacting on what you hear, um, and, and, and letting the movement to a degree morph and evolve. Um, which is clearly quite would be quite terrifying for any vice chancellor. I get that, but I, I do think that's the direction um, of travel. Brilliant, thank you. Well, let's uh, let's bring our panel uh, onto the stage, as it were. Uh, and and Henry, uh, can we can we start with you? Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, many of the people uh, I, I have read 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 and enormously enjoyed New Power and, and drawn on it myself in some in some some of the work that I've done um, writing about kind of about about what Wonky is and, and about kind of why we exist. Um, and uh, really interested in, I guess. Where you were coming from uh, when you you know when when you conceived that book with you and your co-author Jeremy, what was your uh, what drove the original concept and how's your thinking evolved since then about how about how new power works in, in around the world? Yeah, thanks. So I think when we, we you know we wrote the, we wrote the book as practitioners, right? So neither of us were academics. I, I run um, Lincoln Center, which is a big old power institution. I run another older institution before that. My colleague Jeremy is, a, is an activist and a movement builder. So we came at this thinking as Jonathan so clearly brought out in his work, thinking there is this unique moment right now. Of course, you know, there's always been top-down power and, and there's always been grassroots power. Like we, we get all that, but there is a distinct moment in time right now when the world is changing in ways which is transforming all of our sectors in fundamental ways. And we're seeing things, and this was, you know, this was at the point in which everyone, we, we wrote the book when everyone was kind of saying, you know, did Twitter cause the Arab Spring? And having this quite kind of, um, shallow conversation about what's fundamentally shifting. And so the argument we wanted to make with the book was, look, 
Um, th there is a way that all of this connectivity and technology is shifting the fundamentals. And uh, the way to reckon with that is to understand how power is shifting, not how technology is shifting. So that was the framing for the book. We really wrote the book not to get drawn into an academic debate, but actually as much as we could to provide tools for practitioners to start building things differently. And the reason I think we're so excited about, about this book is, is what Jonathan has done so masterfully is put together something which in my mind is, is not a commentary, but a manifesto, right? It's a real sense of, okay, how, how could this be done differently at a time when uh, the urgency of action, I think, is something in all of our minds, right? It, it, it is. This isn't something we can think about for three years until it goes away, right? The moment is requiring our great institutions to reinstitutionalize. I think what his book does so well is gives us that roadmap. In the chat box, sort of quite early on, uh, I've been saving up this question. Uh, what's wrong with old power? Well, I think that there are many things which are not wrong with old power. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, one of the things that's about old power is expertise, I would classify, Jeremy and I classify as an old power value. And, and it's hard to think of a time when expertise could matter more right right now, right? In fact, expertise is, is losing a debate globally. All these people who've had all this power actually are, are being beaten down. And you only, need, you only need to look at the debate around vaccines to see the dangers of old power failing, right? We, we have in this country, I'm in the US, um, and we, we have this continuing problem here, which is actually the people who are hesitant um, uh, to take vaccines or anti-vaxxers are one of the biggest risks actually to us not getting to herd immunity. Um, and that's not because there aren't sufficient number of peer-reviewed papers or there aren't good enough journals or there aren't interesting symposiums about vaccines. All those things exist. It's because the way that trust is being demolished is because people in their own networks are listening to their peers, not to experts. So I want to underscore old power is enormously important, but I also think it's damaging. So I'll give you some examples from the university world. Um, we have too often framed our universities and are allowing them to be held back because of old power rituals and rights, which do protect the powerful, right? They protect a small degree of powerful people. Um, you look at university, Stanford University, where I, I um, serve as, as, as a fellow in the US, every year they celebrate their low admission rate. You know, it's something like, you know, 3% or something like that. And on one level, that's terrific because it means it's in, in high demand. Another way of thinking about that, if you think about universities as of, of sources of social good, that means 97 out of 100 people you've turned away. Um, you know, it's hard to think that a hospital would celebrate that, right? But in the university world, we've somehow equated exclusion with success, right? By leaving more people out, it means we're a greater institution. And that's everything from how you could think about tenure to how you think about the publication and the ownership of journals to how you think about how information is disseminated. I remember a friend of mine had written a really important piece of work on open sourcing, and it was really practically useful and it would have helped people. And she had to hide it for a year and a half because she knew she couldn't publish it because if she published the information before it was in a proper journal, it would damage her career prospects. This piece of information that would actually genuinely help practitioners everywhere was held away. So I think the investigation here is not to say old power bad, old power bad, new power good. The investigation here is what are the things of the old power world that we want to sustain? What are the things that we should be brave enough to leave by the wayside? And how do we blend the two together? And I think that's the, the debate that should play out in the years ahead. Uh, Funmi, can I come to you? I mean, uh, you're, you're, you're sort of in leadership in, a, in, a, in, a, in an old power institution, albeit one with a, with a very kind of strong thread of service woven through your, your strategic objectives. Can you speak a bit about what that sort of feels like, um, you know, trying, trying to kind of, I guess, live that, that service mission, and particularly in your context in the international space? Because I mean, one of the things Jonathan talks about is, is that, you know, the place of a university is important, but it's not the only thing, you know, that, that universities can have this sort of global concern. How, you know, what does that look like in practice? 
that, that's thank you. I mean, we we truly are in those uh, in between times, as uh, Jonathan uh, was alluding to, and as he took out of um, uh, Amy's book. So, so look at it this way: we're talking about this sense of place. Place is no more uh, just around the corner uh, in Southeast London or North London, wherever that university is located. We're navigating at the same time the local, the national, uh, the global, uh, because those that we claim to serve uh, sit in those spaces all at once. I think that, that that's, that's the first challenge. Uh, from a King's uh, perspective, what we've seen is that corridors are filled with both legal citizens and social citizens of the world all at once. And that's what makes this uh, book really fascinating, having worked uh, with Jonathan um, on these issues. You therefore find that you're dealing with the diversity of home students uh, at the same time across the UK, across class divides. Um, the, the, the challenge of us saying as a university, we want to recognize that we belong in an inner London uh, area. We want to welcome those students through our doors. That challenge is that you're going to get all of that diversity. And at the same time, you have to give them a sense of belonging. And they make demands on you uh, because we've asked them to come. And then you also go uh, at this moment, I, I, I don't have the exact data. I should have it um, you know, at my fingertips. But we have in excess of 10,000 students from about 150 countries globally. You've told them to come. Of course, there are questions of marketization and all of that. Uh, and so you have this melting pot that is King's College London. And we also then have this vision of the world. Um, interestingly, Jonathan um, you know, helped a lot to facilitate what is now our vision 2029 to make the world a better place. In any case, our mission has always been uh, to be in service of society. But what that really means uh, when you translate it into a blueprint that allows you to be socially responsible is what we've been trying to do the past few years. But then you have students from all these countries who have expectations of you. Interestingly, the same kinds of issues as Henry is talking about that our international students experience is what our home students experience. It's just that their realities um, you know, will be different. But do they experience measures of inequality, differences in outcome as it applies you know, to home students? So does it apply to international students? Those students who are the first to come uh, to university from you know, in their families, and those who come from different countries that didn't have exposure to British education. And so it's one thing to say, yes, we have all these international students and we're the wealthier for it because they can afford to pay this, uh, these fees. But the sense of responsibility, therefore, which we have had to grapple with, is to listen to them, but is also to begin to redefine what it means uh, to be a global university when you have all of these people, um, you know, inside your doors. And therefore, it's pushed our service agenda a great deal. It's allowed us to redefine what we call internationalization. It cannot just be about having all these numbers of international students. It's about the kind of values that we share uh, with them, that they share amongst themselves. And so you have to see the world through their eyes, and they have to see the world through each other's eyes. Therefore, you have to rethink uh, what Jonathan is talking about uh, around decolonizing the curriculum, Whose knowledge are you deploying when you're training uh, these students? Whose knowledge counts when you're doing that research? And actually, uh, my last point around this is the crux of social responsibility is that you have to do, you, you have to deliver the knowledge that counts for society. And if you did that, 
and you didn't understand that through the eyes of the members of society, then, you know, for, for whose benefit is that knowledge? I, I, these are the things we're grappling with. And it's a work in progress, I have to say, but it's just that the, five, uh, the past five years have been exciting uh, for me as somebody also who also studied at King's having come from abroad because we're allowing ourselves to have a debate about what that means. And actually, the, the, it's a debate that you know gets very tense sometimes because if you have to talk about equality for a black person, for a Russian or an American, what does that translate into uh, in terms of you know, what programs you put out there. I think we're right in the middle of it. We like to say that we have done a lot. I think there's still a lot of work uh, to be done. But to conclude, Ben uh, Vulami's point, I saw in the chats, makes the point uh, very precisely, and it's kind of apt uh, for me, because our students truly have new power values. <laughs> the institution is trying to catch up, uh, and it hasn't caught up. Uh, many institutions haven't caught up. And this is what it's about. And if we don't meet ourselves midpoint, there will be that confrontation eventually. And the pandemic has released, you know, uh, some of these, um, you know, tensions a little bit. Thanks. Uh, Joe, I'm going to bring you in. You've been incredibly patient. Thank you for, for, for bearing with us. Um, in the book, Jonathan says, and I'm going, to, I'm going to read it out so I don't misquote him, that universities are getting a reputation for being elitist, out-of-touch institutions that are exploiting students, their parents, and broader society through worthless and expensive degrees and esoteric research. Do you agree? Well, that's an argument which we're hearing a lot of, and there is a, you know, it reflects this climate of mounting HE scepticism um, that, that can be found, you know, in, not just on conservative ventures, actually, where, though it's probably uh, strongest there. Um, you know, I think it was telling when we saw last year this, you know, the moment when we passed that 50% threshold being of uh, young people going to going into HE, that was greeted with uh, some dismay um, in parts of the political system. And that reflects, you know, that's that sentiment which Jonathan describes very well. There is a feeling that uh, for too many people, the returns aren't there, that they're participating in courses which lead to, you know, subpar outcomes that in many cases, they'd be better off not going, not going to university at all. So you know that sen that sentiment is is very real, um, and I think a combination of factors is behind it. I think you know the the growing affordability question uh, for government of you know such large numbers going into HE, uh, you know, with universities able to operate a demand led system where they can issue any number of sort of nine thousand two hundred and fifty pound checks on the taxpayers' nickel. Um, is, is something which the Treasury is clearly going to be looking very hard at. Um, I do anticipate that this demand-led system is, is probably reaching the end of its uh, sell-by date. Um, I would expect some form of number controls to return at some point, whether it's around a minimum tariff entry um, or, or perhaps uh, caps on numbers going into unfashionable courses in the arts and humanities and creative industries and so on. Um, unfashionable for, for from the point of view of the current uh, sort of dispensation. So yeah, I think it's a very I think it's a very real um, a very real issue. I think I think the sector would be able to head a lot of it off if it did a better job at demonstrating that it actually embraced accountability. I mean, how it addresses its core missions around you know the quality of teaching, the learning environment, you know, the impactful nature of its research, and also the rate at which it's sort of translating and transferring knowledge into the wider economy and society. I think if the sector 
were more uh, open to challenge and more willing to embrace uh, mechanisms to sort of you know assess performance in those key areas of what universities do you know leaving aside all of the other sort of social mission stuff which Jonathan's book um, talks about um, I think government would be prepared to you know let the system roll on a bit but the, but, the, but the difficulties governments have been having in getting the sector to embrace accountability mean there's a sort of a you know, problem of a lack of, uh, you know, lack of confidence in the way the current demand-led model is rolling out. And when you say accountability, what does that mean? What does that, what does that mean to you? What, what would that look like? What would be kind of, what would, what would be satisfactory or sufficient? Well, I think it was quite telling, you know, well, I, I've, obviously, I've obviously bared the scars of attempts to put in place systems of accountability. And, you know, I, I, I didn't entirely succeed I acknowledge with um, my my um, magnificent effort with the teaching exchange, sorry, teaching excellence framework. <laughs> um, but it was a it was an attempt to start a conversation about you know how do we actually get universities to you know as I say embrace accountability and and open up about you know the outcomes that students are getting from participating um, on different courses at different institutions, which are legitimate questions if you're funding this system or if you're a student putting their time and you know human capital to work in our system they're legitimate questions to try and answer but the sort of the the full frontal opposition um, which we received as government and the failure of the sector to present alternative models of accountability you know, were were a bit depressing i think i think fundamentally short-sighted for the sector because you know that's left us in a situation where we've now got successive you know, government ministers, secretaries of state saying, you know, too many young people go to universities. So that's not a good place for us to be either because it's because it's patently obvious. You know, when you look around the world and you look at where the most high-performing knowledge economies are, they've all got rates of participation in higher education that are far in excess of ours. And if you look at where jobs are being created around the world today, you know, they're being created in sectors of the economy that disproportionately employ those with, you know, level seven, level six, level seven, level eight, levels of education. So we're not going to win uh, as an economy if we, unless we solve this conundrum. And I do think universities have a big part to play in this in terms of embracing accountability, allowing uh, the providers of funding and students themselves to, to really uh, open up the engine and see, and see where the goods are being delivered. Um, Jonathan, over to you. You get the, the final word. What, what have you, what, what's this conversation been like for you? Has it, has it, has it, felt, like, <laughs> has it felt horrible or is it? No, been... no, it's damn sight nicer than my Viva <laughs> many years back. Yeah, um, yeah. Having, had, having had one myself, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's been brilliant. It, and, and in one sense, yeah, what I wanted to do, you know, the sort of motivation, I guess, writing the book was to stimulate this conversation. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm sort of sit in deep admiration um, and deep frustration with universities. And, and I just wish that we as a sector could um, embrace um, this concept of social purpose, embrace these concepts of new power. Because if we can, we can really energize not only what we do and our students and who works with them, but actually really serve um, the societies within which we are located. Um, so I think my, my sort of big plea is, um, I guess, twofold. One is engage um, 
with the ideas. I, I know some, you know, I say in the preface, um, some ideas will delight and some ideas will discuss, discuss individuals as they read them. Um, and I know that, you know, the stuff around um, academic contracts being a good example. Um, but we need to have this debate um, as a sector. Um, and then the very practical thing is, you know, I just think you can't really go on this journey and this you put your social purpose at the core of everything you do um, and, and if there's one thing is that social purpose at the core of every conversation you have in your university so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So uh, thanks very much to Jonathan, Joe, Funmi, Henry, Debbie, everyone at Team Wonky for making everything happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky.